Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of Medical Product Outsourcing Magazine. I'm back once again for an episode of Mike on MedTech. Joining me as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. Mike, how are you today? I'm well, Sean. Thank you very much. Great. So uh, today we're going to look at a... uh, uh, relatively recent guidance from the FDA. It's the non-binding feedback after certain FDA inspections of device establishments. So as uh, Mike has so eloquently put for, uh, for me in more layman's terms to help me understand what, what that gibberish is, uh, simply, you know, do we need a pre-sub for 43s? Uh, so that's our topic for today. And, you know, Mike, let's just jump right into it. What what's, uh, led to this new guidance, and, and is it something we really need? Well, that's a great question, Sean, and thanks for the opportunity to, to have this discussion because this is one of these topics that pretty much applies to all medical device companies across the board. Um, so why do we need this uh, guidance, and, and what's new about it? Well, uh, as perhaps some in your audience ha- uh, know, the number of um, inspections, annual site inspections, that uh, FDA is doing both domestically as well as internationally has greatly increased over the last decade. As a matter of fact, Sean, here are just some quick statistics. Over the last 10 years or so, on the foreign side, uh, inspections have, have increased by almost 250%. And here in the U.S. domestically, they've increased about 50%. In addition to the, um, the more frequent inspections, perhaps what's most notable for our audience is that CDRH is taking a much more aggressive approach to issuing warning letters and, in some, and, and 483s um, uh, as a result of these inspections. Sean, why do you think that FDA is doing more inspections and why do you think they're taking more of an aggressive approach? Uh, well, I mean, I could I could say that perhaps there's uh, more manufacturers, perhaps uh, more products coming out, but I I suspect you have a uh, a different uh, aspect or a different reasoning behind it. Well, I think that's part of it. I think clearly we have more medical device companies, we have more medical products, uh, so that certainly makes sense. But to be frank, I think the answer is something that we've talked about you and I in some of our previous podcasts, um, and that is. Some companies and the people in them have done uh, and then continue to do stupid things. And as a result, this leads to bad press. Uh, This leads to people being harmed. This leads to, um, as we've talked about before, uh, the implant files, um, bleeding edge, you know, lots of other things. So uh, this is regrettably a, um, um, you know, a ramification of, I hate to be blunt, Sean, and some people might consider this to be unkind, but as a professional biomedical engineer, I see it happen all too frequently. Some people do stupid things. <laughs> Unfortunately true. So, uh, so to, to move on with the uh, guidance, what's, what's the goal or objective of the, uh, you know, the guidance, this increased inspection, uh, or you know, maybe just stick with the, uh, the guidance itself? What's the, uh, the goal here? So the goal of this guidance or of this program in general is very simple. According to the guidance, and by the way, it's a very short guidance. It's only about eight pages long. Um, But according to the guidance, it's to improve communications with medical device companies concerning corrective actions in response to investigational observations, Uh, for example, uh, a 4A3. 
So in other words, uh, the FDA comes in and does a, an inspection, and they find something that's concerning or perhaps even wrong. The goal of this program is to provide sort of a, of a framework, if you will, of the company and the FDA be able to communicate to work together uh, to address that, that, that finding. Um, that's, that's the goal, simply put. Um, before we get into the details of the program, Sean, um, maybe we should also talk uh, a little bit about the difference between a 43 and a warning letter because at least in my experience, Sean, a lot of folks in our industry use those terms synonymously. Do you think you've been, you've been in this game for a long time, Sean? Do you think that a 43 and a warning letter is the same thing? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that since they each have uh, different names that they're not, and uh, you know I've I've been in the industry long enough to know that they're they're not, but I uh, I couldn't get into the into the weeds on what the differences are. Well, you, the answer you, you got is correct. A four a four eight three and a warning letter is not the same, even though sometimes people use those terms uh, uh, synonymously. Um, there is a an important difference. So, simply put, a form forty three is any finding that uh, FDA um, uh, notices, if you will, as a result of an inspection, regardless of severity or importance or anything like that. A warning letter, on the other hand, is a serious violation that would result from a 483. In other words, not all 483s progress to become warning letters. And actually, in the medical device industry, most of the time that's all we hear about is a 483 or sometimes a company getting a warning letter. But there's actually a third step, an even more severe um, consequence, um, which doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. Do you know what we call that, John? No, actually, I don't. It's called a consent decree. Uh, a consent degree, and this is the most extreme. This is when um, uh, when you can actually get a shutdown. This is when sometimes lawyers get involved. So the progression, to, to simplify this for your audience, is a 43, which is just any finding, regardless right. of uh, good, bad, or indifferent, a warning letter, which is a serious violation, and then a consent degree, which could result in, you know, from the most serious violation. The, the thing that I want to mention to our audience, Sean, is, is that just because a, a company gets a 483 doesn't necessarily mean they're doing something wrong. And I have an example I can share, Sean, uh, from one of the companies that I work with if you think it would be useful for our audience to help understand. Sure. I mean, a, a real-world example is always, always uh, helpful to illustrate it. So here's a real-world example, to use your phrase. So about two years ago, one of the companies that I work with they had FDA come in and uh, do an inspection, and the inspector said, you're not um, um, uh, following the industry standard when it comes to manufacturing this particular product, their product. And the company said, yes, you're exactly correct. We're not following the industry standard. Let us explain why. And long story short, Sean, it turned out that this particular company found a better way to manufacture this particular product than the industry standard. And the inspector said, okay, thank you for explaining that. It certainly makes sense. Here's your 483 anyway. 
And the reason why, well, you're laughing, Sean, but the reason why I share this, um, this story, unfortunately it's just one of many, is because this, is, this helps understand why companies are so paranoid to make any changes, even when it comes to improving the device or improving the process to make the device because it's, it, it, it's, it can be so difficult, it can be so challenging. And the thing that personally bothers me the most about this example, Sean, is that not only have we not created incentives for companies to do things better and to make things better, we've actually, as I just shared with you, created disincentives for companies right. to do that. And I would like to think, Sean, that anybody that knows anything about regulation, that is not the intent of regulation. Right, okay. I, I, I think I've got you there, uh, or at least understand that that aspect a little bit better. Um, so now with with and maybe we we get into this a little bit further. But I my follow up question to to that example is you know is there a requirement for a company to respond to that 483 when the inspector himself or herself has acknowledged that the process. Uh, or at least recognized, I should say, that the process being used in that particular facility is is a better process than the industry standard. Or, you know, is it what's the uh, what's the obligation of the company in addressing that 483? So that's a great question, Sean, and that is actually one of the side benefits of this particular guidance and this particular process. Because, admittedly, I'm sure that FDA did not consider the kind of scenario that I just described in right. this particular guidance. But we can use this process to address uh, the concern that you just raised based on my example from a moment ago. So let me explain briefly the, the process in this guidance, and then we can uh, uh, try to apply it here. So simply put, a company um, uh, undergoes a manufacturing inspection. And by the way, most of the time, this, this is a post-market inspection. In other words, the device is already on the market. But sometimes it could be a pre-market inspection. For example, Sean, for those of you uh, in the audience who work in the Class 3 and the PMA universe, you know that there are pre-market manufacturing inspections that are required, um, not in the 510K or de novo universe, although that could happen in the future, but in the PMA universe it does. So the company undergoes a manufacturing inspection. They receive a 483, possibly a warning letter. The next step is that the company then analyzes the situation. They try to understand what the problem is. They come up with a proposed corrective action or a solution. Step three, then, is that the company submits their analysis and their proposed solution or corrective action to the FDA before they implement it, because that's the, the purpose here, to before they implement it. And then finally, FDA comes back and provides what in, you pointed out in the title, Sean, is non-binding feedback on the proposed corrective action or solution from the company. In other words, simply put, Sean, does the FDA buy your solution? If they do, great. If they don't, then you have some more talk uh, to do. So again, to summarize the process, the company undergoes an inspection. They get a, a, a 483. The company analyzes the situation, comes up with a solution. They submit their solution to the, um, to the FDA. And FDA uh, says either we agree or we don't agree. And oh, by the way, whatever we tell you uh, is not binding. So in essence, that's the, uh, the process. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So, so in in the case you proposed, you know, where the 
technically the solution is already in place, or I'm sorry, in the example you had, you had mentioned, the, the solution is already in place because they are actually doing the process better than the industry standard. So would that simply be the response is that, you know, the solution that we have currently in place is better than the industry standard. The inspector acknowledged this during the inspection. Therefore, we are not taking any further action. And here's the evidence that we have collected to prove that this process is better than the industry standard. Very good, Sean. You, you, you summarized that. Uh, perhaps uh, you can become a regulatory consultant. All right. Um, there you go. Perfect. You're, you're exactly right. And it's the last part, I think, that's the most critical here. In other words, the proof um, right. that you know, our process is better, is more reliable, leads to a better product, you know, w w whatever it is. Um, because remember, as we've talked about, Sean, uh, many times before, FBA, when they're doing their job, is to be critical of everything. So it's our job as the manufacturer, whether we're talking about uh, pre-market in a regulatory submission, or in this case, whether we're talking about post-market in the forms of uh, manufacturing inspection, our job is to prove to the FDA. So if we go into the FDA and say, this guy is blue, uh, FDA's job is to say, okay, prove it. We say to the FDA that we have a better process than the industry standard. Um, FDA's job is to say, okay, prove it. So that's the most important part that would go into, uh, into this um, uh, discussion. Okay, all right. So, if, if, uh, so what, is, what is a typical, you know, what are, what are the options from the FDA? What is the feedback from the FDA on the manufacturer's submission to them, you know, look like? What is the non-binding feedback and what does it look like? So, Simply put, we, we send this information to the FDA, and by the way, um, according to the guidance, this is supposed to be done um, uh, in a relatively short period of time. We can talk more about that, but uh, about 15 days. Um, so we send this feedback to the FDA. FDA can respond by saying, uh, if it's appropriately implemented, then it appears to be adequate or partially adequate or option number three, inadequate. Those are the three options that FDA has. If it's appropriately implemented, and I emphasize the word appropriately because you know, just putting something down on paper um, doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily descriptive enough. So if it's right. appropriately implemented, FDA can say that it appears to be adequate Please notice I'm parsing my words carefully, and so is FDA. It's not saying that it is accurate. It says it appears to be accurate. They could say that it's partially adequate, or they could say that it's inadequate. inadequate. And if it's partially or if it's inadequate, then FDA can provide some explanation as to why they think it's inadequate. In some cases, they might provide some recommendations, but at the end of the day, Sean, it's up to us, just like in the scenario that you and I described a moment ago, it's up to us to kind of go back and forth. It's, you know, it's our product. It's our manufacturing process. Therefore, it's our solution that we should ultimately sell into the FDA. It's not FDA's job to tell us how to manufacture our product. So when you say the FDA can provide an explanation or recommendations of how to improve, that's not a requirement of the FDA. They, they could simply kick it back and say, this is an inadequate solution, you know, uh, re, you know, 
redo it or readdress it or you know i mean is that is that possible does that occur or that's exactly right sean and i've seen it happen uh both ways to, to both extremes uh, <clears throat> again whether we're talking about pre-market in the form of a regulatory submission or post-market in the form of uh, a manufacturing inspection what it really comes down to is the is the particular reviewers or the particular inspectors that are involved. In other words, some reviewers or inspectors might actually go into nauseating detail um, as to what they think would be a better solution or a way to solve this problem. Other uh, reviewers or um, uh, uh, inspectors will say, this is your job to figure this out. This is not my job. My job is to evaluate your solution, but it's not my job to give you the solution. Um, and, and it could be anywhere in between. So this is why I said a moment ago, it's not FDA's job to design our product or to tell us how to manufacture it. It's FDA's job to you know, make sure that we can support our label claims, or in this case, make sure that the solution that we're coming up with appears to solve the, the, the problem at hand. Okay, so now now you've gotten your response, your FDA response, saying it appears adequate. So you you know you're okay. You've you've addressed the E four eighty three. It appears adequate. You know, you know. Obviously, they can't say for certain because, like you said, just just writing it down and actually implementing it are two very different things. Does this now get checked upon a future inspection, or is there a follow up inspection that occurs? Well. Um, there's nothing specific in the in the guidance about a follow-up inspection. However, sooner or later, the same company is going to get reinspected, right. and I could just about guarantee that before the inspector walks in the door, they're going to look at the history of this particular company. And if they right. saw that, gee, there were 43s that were issued in the past or perhaps even warning letters that were issued in the past, that's going to be a red flag for him or her to, uh, to dig into that particular area even further. Okay, so now, so that, so that might be right at the top of their list to check. But again, they'll have the information on the 483 that was issued, as well as the this this exchange with the between the manufacturer and the FDA on the uh, proposed solution that was designated that it appears adequate. Well. You you are correct in a technical sense, Sean. The reason why I say that is because we would like to think that they're going to have access to all of the paperwork, um, but regrettably, sometimes some of the paperwork does fall through the cracks. But more importantly, this is another thing that the audience really has to understand, and I see this almost every day in my in my professional consultation. Just reading. Uh, paperwork from the past, if it was, especially if it was generated by somebody else, doesn't necessarily convey the whole story. You've got to keep in mind that it might be many months, maybe even a couple of years later when this issue comes up again, and it might not be the same inspector that's involved. It might not even be the same company that's involved. And I see a lot of companies, quite frankly, Sean, waste a lot of time and money trying to understand paperwork from the past because the people were, were, were no longer involved. Do you understand what I mean? So, it's, so yeah. there's only a limited amount of information that we can actually get from, what, from the words on the paper, so to speak. So the ideal would be for a company to maintain their records such that a 43 is issued, they have that on file, they have the, the uh, exchange with the FDA until they've uh, achieved a, an appear adequate 
uh, notification, and then sh when that inspection comes, whether it's in six months, a year, two years, whatever it is, at that facility, an inspector walks in the door and says, hey, you got a 43, did you ever do anything about it? And they could say, as you can see here, we had received an appear adequate, and now let me show you the actual implementation, walk them over to whatever the you know, area or violation or, or concern was, I should say, not violation, whatever the concern was that, that birthed that 483, and they show them, here's the solution we outlined, and here it is in practice. That's exactly correct, Sean, and I actually would take it one step further. Um, what I'm going to recommend next goes well beyond what's in the, in the guidance, but to me, there's all kinds of regulatory and, and quality precedent uh, coming from the area of change management. So what I would suggest to the company is to handle this almost like a letter to file where we have essentially two sets of documentation. I don't mean two sets of books in a, an accounting sense, um, but two sets of documentation. One that's a little more abbreviated that we would submit to the FDA as part of the quote-unquote official record, but mm -hmm. a second set of documentation that's much more detailed, much more involved, not just explaining what we're doing and why, but also what we're not doing and why we're not doing it. That we keep sort of as a letter to file. In other words, we keep that inter to the company for a couple of reasons. First of all, we can share it with the FDA later if necessary. Also, if there's changeover in our own organization, let's say the, the person that was in charge of this um, is no longer with the company or, God forbid, they got hit by a bus, and so there's somebody that's new coming in, they have access to that much more detailed information so that they'll be able to get up to speed much quicker. Again, this to me is just common sense. This is, this is one of the things that I advise companies to do, but this is well beyond beyond uh, what, what the FDA is suggesting in this particular guidance. Right, and there's also advantages, of course, to you know, internal communications regarding an FDA uh, 43 you know, that, that is, is for employee eyes only versus what is actually communicated with the FDA. Not to say that companies should be hiding anything, but just you know, obviously there's going to be more uh, familiar language, uh, like you said, a, a greater explanation. There's going to be additional information in that fleshed out version versus the truncated one that, uh, that um, alleviates the 43 itself in, in communication with the, with the FDA. That's exactly correct, Sean, and let me be crystal clear on this because I don't want to be misunderstood. It's not like we're hiding any information. On the contrary, this is all information that I want to capture and keep because, uh, you know, regrettably, Sean, many times I'll get asked to come into a project in a company um, and I'll ask, you know, why are you doing this or why are you not doing that, and nobody knows because the people that were involved at that particular time are no longer in the company. So, you know, this is, uh, this is a problem not just in, 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 in this particular area of handling, you know, 43 responses, but in, in a lot of kind of project management situations. So to me, there's nothing new here. 
Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I mean, uh, I definitely have more questions on this, so we will uh, most certainly have a part two to this podcast on this topic, and uh, I will uh, pepper Mike with those questions in a in a second podcast recording, uh, and that I hope you will will gain benefit out of the uh, the com- the combination of the two. Uh, but for for now, for today, that's all we have. So I'd like to thank Mike, as always, for participating in this episode of Mike on MedTech. And to you, the, the listener, thanks, thanks for tuning in.